Hi, welcome to this week's Science of Fiction. I'm Will Thompson, and this week I'm joined by Aubrey de Grey, who is the Chief Science Officer of the SENS Foundation. Uh, Aubrey, you've claimed, that, apparently, according to the internet, that the first person to live to a thousand years old might already have been born. Yes, I have. Um, is that anyone in particular, or is it just or someone older, younger? Well, certainly the younger you are, the longer you have before you're going to need medicines to stop you from getting sick as a result of old age. So certainly the younger you are, the better the chances you have of uh, benefiting from medicine that has not yet been developed. But the prediction I made arises from my expectation that within the next 25 or 30 years, we've got a good chance, at least a 50-50 chance, of developing medicines that bring aging under reasonably comprehensive medical control. And in particular, these medicines will be regenerative. They will be bona fide rejuvenation therapies that actually work on people who are already in middle age or older when the therapies arrive, which means, of course, that if you're a young person today, you're still going to be in reasonable health at that time. Now, those therapies will probably not be totally comprehensive in defeating aging, so to speak, but they will buy enough time for the same people to be, shall we say, re-rejuvenated 30 years later and, and, and so on with progressively better therapies. And that leads to the prediction that people should be able to avoid the ill health associated with old age however long they live. Once that is taken into account, the idea of living a very long time indeed, like thousands of years is perfectly consistent with what we already know about the risks of death from causes other than aging i see so so that's take so that is um basically discount if, if you assume assuming as you as you do that within a reasonable time span these therapies will develop to, 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 to get rid of the risk of dying purely from old age then the remaining risks are simply environmental hazards being hit by a bus or so on that's exactly right i see so so this this is your this is your field, right? Which I hear is called uh, gerontology. That's or, right. Or, or, gerontology actually covers t several different fields. I normally call myself a biomedical gerontologist, which is the term used for people who are trying to develop therapies to postpone the ill health of old age. There are also people who would call themselves clinical gerontologists, and they're more focused on applying the therapies that already exist today to do what we can to help the elderly. Then there are social gerontologists who look at you know, public policy and things like that. But yeah, I'm a biomedical gerontologist. So I see. So in, in the case of some of those other non-biogerontologists, gerontologist fields the, the emphasis is on using uh, techniques we already know such as you know increased care and studying what factors in the environment affect aging as opposed to um going at the source of aging itself that's right okay interesting um so on, on a slight tangent before we go into the first song um something that's come up that's come up a few times on the show in the past um and in quite a lot of science fiction is this idea of um preserving human intelligence uh, beyond what the body can cope with uh, by um looking into up uploading human consciousness into some kind of computer simulation um i understand you have you have a background in computing as well but i guess that you've decided that that's way less uh, realistic and uh, viable an option than a medical approach well i wouldn't go quite that far i think it's certainly a good thing that there are people Ag aggressively researching that sort of area and indeed other aspects of what we might call non-biological approaches to medical problems um, you know uh, nanotechnology things like that 
because the fact is, for any technology that's more than even a few years away in the future, we just don't know how hard the problem really is. We just don't know what unforeseen obstacles we're going to encounter. So I think that the, shall we say, the brute force biomedical approach, biotechnological approach that I'm pursuing is the one that has the greatest chance of success before the others. But I, I know that I could be wrong. And so it's a great thing that all of these avenues are being pursued.
that was uh, What Sarah Said by Death Cab for Cutie. Um, so that there's like a, a very, m- many, many works of fiction which deal with um, extending life or indefinite life and so on. Um, a, a couple of examples uh, we thought of as um, the, the Long Habit of Living by Joe Haldeman, which I think was published as Buying Time in some places in, in the world, which actually is, I think is a better title. Um, in, in that universe, um, a, a technology is developed where you can extend your life, but it turns out that these technologies aren't, this, these, these uh, rejuvenation and life extension treatments are not permanent, so they need repeating every decade or so. Um, is that something you, you, you see as likely and or a problem with um, this type of research, that it might be biased towards those who can afford such repeated treatments? Well, first of all, let me address directly the question of what whether the treatments would be uh, one-off or whether they would be periodic. I think we can say with absolute certainty that they will be periodic. They uh, will be essentially re- preventative maintenance therapies that remove various types of molecular and cellular damage that have accumulated as side effects of the body's normal operation and that... Um, of course, therefore, do reaccumulate, and so these therapies certainly will need to be done you know, indefinitely every so often. So, um, so, so, however, so, so this, I guess this comes back to what you were saying earlier about um, um, actively restore, re- restoring um, or re- reversing the effects of aging on, in, in people, as opposed to maybe modifying the, 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 the genome or our cells directly to to avoid the aging in the first place. Exactly. Yes, the human body is a machine, and as such, it is inevitably something that accumulates various types of damage as side effects of its normal operation, just the same way that a car does or an airplane or whatever. And so there will always be the need for periodic maintenance. However, uh, to come back to the cost question, the fact that these therapies will need to be repeated does not mean that they will be difficult to pay for. What we have to remember is that we will be keeping people in a healthy, useful state. And that means that we will save the most incredible amount of money on First of all, the medical care that we currently um, uh, expend on people who are in ill health as a result of having been born a long time ago. And secondly, much more, much bigger than that, is the indirect costs that we save. First of all, the increased productivity of the children of the elderly who aren't having to look after their parents anymore, and so on. The uh, fact that the elderly will be contributing wealth to society rather than just consuming wealth. It's absolutely clear that it would be economically completely suicidal for any country not to make these therapies available free at the point of delivery, irrespective of ability to pay for everybody who is old enough to need them. Okay, so 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 you don't foresee there being a um. Well, I, I suppose you, so that, that that implies that the cost. You think that the cost. The, the cost of investment of developing these technologies uh, would be so quickly um, recouped by the economic advantages of having a, a larger active workforce um, that, 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 that that won't be an issue in their uh, widespread availability and the development of them in the first place. Exactly. Larger active workforce and a smaller inactive uh, you know, um, set of geriatrics. Right. That makes, and I, I, guess, I guess that kind of comes, comes out what I was what we're thinking about next which was uh this novel by uh, peter f hamilton which uh, apparently um it's, it's titled misspent youth and he in interviews admits that it isn't one of his best works and it's a um an un- i think he said an unpleasant book about an unpleasant character um, and the unpleasant character is um one of very few recipients in the world of a technology which uh, restores him to um re- restores his health to an early an earlier stage of his life um and then he he proceeds to take advantage of it in all kinds of 
unpleasant ways, um, which uh. which is much more in the keeping of of the kind of regeneration we see in uh, so in say Doctor Who. Uh, of course, he he undergoes these these uh, big personality transformations at the same time and doesn't it isn't the same character afterwards. But um, so so I guess in 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 a world where we expect um, all all countries to offer this equally, which we could argue is not the case for medical care today um, in it's many parts of the world. It's certainly not the case for medical care today, for expensive medical care in most parts of the world. But we have to remember that the economic arithmetic that I described earlier does not apply for high-tech medicine that we have today. For the overwhelming majority of diseases and disabilities, we're talking about things that are progressive, that are age-related, and we just don't have therapies that work particularly well. So the cost-saving that I described just doesn't actually come into the equation for today's therapies the way it will with these future therapies. I see. So, 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 so it's the nature of the therapies themselves, you think? That's, um... that's right. The nature of the therapies being that they will actually keep people youthful and productive rather than simply postponing by a very modest period the time before we have to spend all the money anyway when people get unproductive and sick. And, and, you, th- and you think we're not looking at a kind of uh, X-Men Wolverine type um, uh, automatic re- regeneration by making the body repair itself more effectively? Um, well, actually, or, that's... Or, or, oh, sorry. So that's- That's not quite so far from the truth. The reason why these therapies are realistically foreseeable is precisely because the body already has an extraordinarily versatile arsenal of self-repair, of uh, wound healing and other types of regenerative capacity. And all we actually need to do is augment that regenerative capacity a little bit in certain specific ways so as to make it more comprehensive. Okay, so, so, you know... In the, in the same way that, um, well, I, I guess I, I'm, I, I, this is not absolutely not my field at all. But as I understand it, people have described some, you know, some cancers as being the um, some of the body's you know, um, self repair mechanisms um, being being triggered incorrectly. Um, do you think? Do you think we're looking at something similar, a similar kind of triggering action to that? Or That's broadly the case, actually, yes. Uh, most people would agree. Most specialists in gerontology would agree that cancer is a large part of the problem. Cancer is not only an incredibly hard thing to fix, certainly I would say the hardest part of aging to address properly, but also during evolution, the body's attempts to suppress cancer and to develop genetic machinery to suppress cancer have resulted in a trade-off such that uh, regenerative capacity is actually actively suppressed in certain ways as a way of minimizing our risk of cancer. So if and when we develop therapies that really, really knock cancer on the head, that will allow us, if you like, to, um, to unleash some of the actively suppressed regenerative capacity that shorter-lived animals or animals with less risk of cancer naturally possess. Now, the defeat of cancer is, of course, something that people have been going after for quite a long time, but it is a, but a novel and very much more aggressive approach to that is a big part of the plan that Sense Research Foundation is pursuing. And I think cancer is kind of an interesting case because, uh, in my understanding, so many of the treatments we have today are not actually um, treated at um, they're, they're treated at you know trying trying to destroy the cancer um, and hope the body can heal itself um, after inflicting slightly more damage on the cancer than on the surrounding tissues so the, the treatments are very 
very very invasive and very that it's not really it's it, it's it's the term war on cancer has something in common with the kinds of techniques used to treat cancer it, it seems quite unlike other areas of medicine in that way that's a fair statement yes cancers are so aggressive and so difficult to treat that medicine has historically taken the view that a, a certain amount of collateral damage is a is a is an acceptable price to pay uh, to actually get the cancer really treated. The problem at the moment, unfortunately, is that even with the acceptance of that, <clears throat> that collateral damage, one still ends up with really big problems in terms of the ability of the cancer to escape uh, the therapy and, 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 and reoccur.
that was uh, Obsolution uh, by Barcelona. Um, makes me think about uh, some of the mechanical implants that people uh, receive as tr treatments for various conditions, uh, which really do become obsolete over time. Uh, and, you know, the, the pacemakers and so on, the technology has, 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 moved, has moved ahead quite a long way. And one of the problems there, I understand, is that um, it's very, because of the risks of performing these treatments, uh, the, often it's best to leave the obsolete technology in place uh, rather than not. I suppose that's perhaps, you're not really talking about... Um, putting objects into the body are you here well it depends what you mean by objects i mean certainly in the early stages of the application of comprehensive regenerative medicine to aging it seems quite likely to me that a significant proportion of what we do will be tissue engineering and of course tissue engineering essentially means replacing organs with artificial organs that have been created in the lab now these artificial organs are not mechanical they are actually made of cells and you know the same sort of stuff that the natural organ is made out of but it's still a transplant same as it is for if you take the organ from a recently deceased donor so in that sense yes we'll be putting objects into the body oh i see so so, so you think that, that that's one of the stepping stones on the way rather than um exclusively taking the angle of, of um, boosting the body's own repair abilities start by um, developing better implants which would more closely mimic the, uh, the the parts of our body we already have it's very much a case-by-case -case thing there are a lot of differences between the different types of therapy that of, of regeneration that we're going to need to do of the damage that we need to, needing to fix depending on which organ you're looking at and so on. And that means that there will be no uniform type of therapy. It will be very much a divide and conquer approach in which certain um, therapies work better for certain in certain cases. However, what we certainly will be wanting to do is to phase out the more invasive surgical components of this panel of interventions as quickly as possible in favor of therapies that are less invasive, such as, for example, simply injecting stem cells so that the organ can repair itself. Okay, that, that 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 stands to reason. So it kind of phased um, phase approach and things as the technology improves. Um, I think one one thing that's interesting about the kind of things you're talking about is that in a lot of science fiction, you know, for example, uh, the video game Deus Ex, in which the protagonist has various um, bio biomechanical slash computational and augmentations to his body, which enable him to do things that normal people cannot do. Um, and that's n not normally the the kind of thing we see in the real world. We don't we don't see people with implants to help them uh, interface with computers and stuff to um, to hear things no other human can hear. It's mostly a case of the, the, the stage we're at now, uh, enabling people to see you know very very fuzzy images. For example, with some there was some kind of retinal implant. I was reading an article about a, a while ago. Um, I guess one counter example in real life. Uh, to this is um, Oscar Pistorius, the uh, South African um, Paralympic sprinter, who's who. Th there were some arguments over whether his um, his prosthetic legs actually potentially make him uh, more able to, or given advantages in some in some aspects of running over a human leg. Like, do, do you think right. this, do you think that there's there's uh, a danger in this of restoring people past what humans could naturally do? Um, I wouldn't call it a danger. I mean, the uh, controversy around Pistorius really arose only because he chose to, he chooses to be a competitive athlete, and therefore one needs to determine what constitutes fair competition. 
I think that in many other aspects of life, the competition aspect simply doesn't apply, and therefore having at least modestly enhanced uh, capabilities over and above what most people would have, or indeed perhaps over and above what anyone currently naturally has, is you know a, a different issue. There are ethical and um, sociological um, debates to be had in that area. I'm absolutely, I, I absolutely agree. However, I think especially if the enhancement is relatively gradual, um, then these ethical arguments may be relatively easy to resolve. There are examples already turning up. For example, I gather that the rate of improvement in the quality of cochlear implants for the treatment of certain types of deafness is so rapid that there is an expectation of having cochlear implants within the next decade or so, which are actually better than normal hearing. Oh, wow. That, 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 that seems like quite, quite, a, uh, quite, quite a substantial uh, uh, de- development, really. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, there are all manner of other possibilities. Certain species can see different wavelengths beyond the spectrum that humans can see. So one could imagine uh, genetic therapies that would confer that sort of ability. You know, there are plenty of ways in which exactly the same technology that needs to be developed for purely treatment purposes, for purely curative purposes, could, with relatively little uh, modification, be used for enhancement purposes. And I think these issues are going to come up, you know, case by case, depending on precisely what functionality we're looking at enhancing, and they will be dealt with in the same way that other technologies are dealt with as, t- as, as they are developed. Perhaps a, ge- a generational thing where, well, I guess, I guess in, a, in a world where aging is less of a concern, um, the generational acceptance of new technologies might also not not be such a big factor in the acceptance of new technologies. I mean, right now, um, you see in, in, in a lot of technological and social changes that uh, younger generations tend to be more m- more okay with technologies which at least which existed for their whole lives, um, whereas older generations tend not to be. Uh, do you think that, do you think that that's a potential risk of? Uh, I, I, I suppose the refuse next would would naturally not be not be part of that debate. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't really call it a risk. You know, as I say, I think it really does very closely mirror what we see with other technologies, with technologies that do not involve actual, you know, implantation of anything in the body. So, for example, um, you know, youngsters use cell phones and computers more than older people do, and that doesn't exactly, you know, cause society to collapse. No, quite so. And, it, and, it, and also people, people use calculators rather than slide rules, and that also hasn't caused society to collapse, despite what some people might have said about how this is, you know, destroying educational standards. Exactly. So, um, I suppose one, one potential social consequence um, of, of, of treating, I suppose, to, to quote the fountain, treating death as a disease. Um, and in, in that film, the, the protagonist is, um, he, he's dedicating his life to um, curing death by curing cancer on, on the basis that that's one of the biggest, well, it's it's very pressing to him. His uh, wife is dying of cancer, um, and as we, we we mentioned earlier, this still still of course leaves um, traumatic death. You can't you can't um, medicate or, you, uh, or medicate away um, the the risk of an accident. Uh, do but do you think that um, extended lifespans and an increased um, um, expectation of of healing will, will affect people's um, risk aversion? I think it's more or less certain to do so. I think the um, main thing that we have to remember is that at the moment, the effort that we put into minimizing certain causes of death really depends rather heavily on the 
extent to which those causes of death, death are actually killing people. Um, so, you know, I think that, for example, the uh, effort that we put into stopping infectious disease in developing vaccines and so on will increase a great deal when the when the um, major cause of death, namely aging, is essentially eliminated and therefore by default the risk of death from uh, infectious diseases goes up. I think the same certainly applies to, for example, um, the way that driving is organized. Um, many years ago, I actually predicted that driving would be outlawed when we had defeated aging. I think that was oversimplistic, I would say now. I would say that it's much more likely that we will just make driving safer by you know, uh, developing and using driverless, driverless cars and such like. And, and building in a great deal more safety features. Um, but yes, that sort of thing. I think that risk aversion is absolutely likely to be a consequence of all of this, but that, that will not just make us stay in bed all day because we're frightened to get up. It will simply induce us to throw money at these various problems so that the risks go down in tandem with the risk of death from aging. It's funny you should mention driving because the the author Charles Stross, who you may be familiar with, has uh, yeah. has has said has said a few times that um, he 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 believes that soon after driverless cars become um, well become, are safe enough and are recognised as safe enough to drive on the road, it'll only be a short a short time from then to a time when people will be seriously considering banning people from driving with an actual driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not the only person to say that by any means. That is generally um, a, 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 a popular school of thought. And, of course, one can imagine situations in which driving could be allowed for recreational purposes in certain restricted neighbourhoods. Um, but uh, it seems abundantly possible to me that driverless cars will become the default and that driving will actually become something of a restricted activity. And and one for, th- for thrill-seekers in the same way that, um, you know, um, skydiving and other 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 forms of risk people do with basically no practical payoff other than entertainment. Yes, I agree.
that was When We Were Younger and Better by 65 Days of Static. Um, Aubrey, I've seen that you've you, you've been quoted as uh, listing, quote unquote, seven deadly things, um, which are, you know, the, the major risks of um, the risks, which, well, causes of aging. Could, could you talk a little about those? Yes. So really, a large part of the reason why I am so optimistic about the um, foreseeability of medicine that really works against aging is because of the manner in which I have broken the problem down into sub-problems. The regenerative medicine approach, the preventative maintenance approach, as one would call it, of, of periodically eliminating molecular and cellular damage that is caused as a side effect of the body's normal operation before that damage reaches a level of abundance that impairs the body's normal operation, that approach is by definition a divide and conquer approach really because there are of course various different types of damage but if we had a thousand different types of damage that all had to be looked at independently then the whole idea would be pretty daunting so really a part of the reason why this doesn't look so daunting is because it turns out or at least I've been saying for about 10 years and I'm, I'm and no one has um has really contradicted me um, that these many, many types of damage can be classified into a very manageable number of categories. And as, I, as you say, I normally describe them as in seven different categories, three of them cellular categories and four of them molecular. And uh, I can go through those categories one at a time if you like, but um, the point is that within each of those categories, there's a particular type of treatment which with perhaps um, some um, variations of the detail but broadly speaking the same therapy should work within all for all examples within the therapy within the category i, I see that i see one of them is um you, you mentioned the um amyloid senile plaque in the brains of uh, alzheimer patients um uh, which makes, makes me wonder about some of the other um follow-on effects of people living longer for example um the I, I'm, I'm aware that you know the human lifespan today is of course dramatically longer than um it has been in the past um but, but I, I wonder whether there's whether we, we might come to a point where um, m people will have um, m mental issues with coping with having been alive for so long and experiencing so many things. Um, and maybe people will want to you know, start over or something. I'm not quite sure how, how, how that and memory would work. I, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that is brought up quite, quite regularly. And of course, we don't really know what the brain of a, you know, a very old person a 200 year old or 2000 year old person is going to be like uh but i think that one thing that we do have to take into account here is the fact that the brain stores information whether it's memories or personality or whatever in a sort of distributed holographic way um so there's not it's not as if like individual facts are stored in individual synaptic connections or anything like that and that means that the set of things that we remember and that we care about and so on is something that's constantly changing, even during our currently normal lifetime. We're forgetting things and we're learning new things. And, and the things as, as, we, as I understand it, as we recall memories, um, the act of doing so can change them. So people don't actually even remember that necessarily the things they believe they remember. So I was just coming to that, actually, yes. Oh. The, um, first of all, we've got, to, we've got to take into account the fact that when we actually forget things, it's because not only did we learn them a long time ago, but also we have not recalled them, and so we have not reinforced the memory. The basic process of recalling a memory ends up just, you know, essentially rewriting it so that it's reinforced. 
you're absolutely right that that rewriting is not necessarily 100% accurate, and therefore, if it happens time and time again, then you know inaccurate inaccuracies can accumulate, like a sort of Chinese whispers type thing. But um, what we remember is what we are interested in remembering. That's the main thing to bear in mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, while while we were preparing the show, we were talking about what what kind of music would be appropriate for this, and and you mentioned that um, people often jump to the to the living forever uh, line of uh, line of your work, and I I feel like which, which is not which is not the emphasis as you, as you as you've said. I think that um, perhaps fiction fiction has a lot to do with this. We we see a lot of works dealing with you know the effects of immortal people or what happens if someone lives way longer than planned. Um, there was this film, The Man from Earth, where a man has been alive for 14,000 years, but because he's the only one of his kind, he has to keep you know, moving and reinventing himself. And do you think that, do you think that this has a, has, a neg- has a negative impact on uh, communicating the kind of research you're doing? Yeah, well, yes, I do. I think that, in fact, the overwhelming majority of science fiction that discusses a post-aging world is counterproductive to efforts of people like myself to actually bring such a world into existence because there's always some kind of dramatic element and it's usually it's almost always something negative uh you know something that is arbitrarily arbitrarily brought into the storyline without any justification such as for example uh, you know everyone gets killed at the age of 30 to make room for new people or whatever um you know and of course people then sort of go away feeling that views entrenched that it's rather a good thing that we don't have medicine that really works against aging and that of course slows things down a great deal by uh, reducing enthusiasm for public funding and such like um, for, for this work to actually be pursued and, and do you do you think that public enthusiasm is is broadly um, is broad, broadly in line with um, with, with the um, with, with the angle with, which, which you're actually fo- focusing on the um, helping to reduce the effects of aging on people, but neg- ne- reflects negatively on the, the immortality angle? I, I think really the problem is that the uh, health benefits and the longevity benefits are not appropriately juxtaposed. Everyone wants to be healthy. No one foresees an age at which they would prefer to be unhealthy. But when they are brought to think about the possibility that there could be this side effect that people would live a very great deal longer as a result of staying truly youthful however long they live, then they get all terribly worried about it. And, you know, I I can sort of understand this because in the... It was only in the recent past that it was possible for people like myself to actually discuss in concrete, down-to-earth terms the prospects for actually developing such medicine that really works against aging. And in the absence of such a prospect, it makes sense to try and find some way of putting aging out of your mind and getting on with your lives and making the best of it, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen to you in the future. And so people have, you know, constructed these um, psychological barriers, if you like, these ways to put aging out of their minds and pretend that it's something that they don't actually view in the same category as specific diseases, even though from a biological perspective, that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, but, but I feel like it's, at some level, um, the, the existence of, of, of um, fiction and other works de- dealing with the, with the concept of, um, in principle, people living for a very long time um, must at least s- s- seed the idea in people's minds that, that, that such a thing is 
is thinkable and also that it isn't it isn't necessarily a bad thing i mean there there are there are some universes where in banks's culture universe where people are you know they're essentially immortal they live for a very very long time and in that he's he's that's kind of presented as facts and not really the focus of any of the stories there are some people who've decided to go into hibernation for a long time so that they can wake up when there's something more exciting going on um as as a reaction to um to, to living so long but i don't think it's that's um it's necessarily demonizing it um so do, do, do you think that um but even when it is do you think it's still it's still a gross negative compared to people not even having the idea in, in mind at all uh, uh well it's, of course you make a good point there, first of all you're quite right that there is some science fiction that treats the defeat of aging somewhat positively however even there much of it is done in a way that makes it that, that, that tries to emphasize the implausibility of the thing actually coming about, which of course also doesn't help very much. Um, the I think I think the ones that do do demonize the idea and essentially implant and entrench in people's minds the certainty that there will be this or that absolutely horrific um, social consequence of um, of defeating aging that really does cause a lot of problems because it's exactly those reservations that are always raised when the topic comes up when I give talks or interviews and so on you know those are the things that people actually are worried about and they express those concerns in extremely trenchant manner you know in extremely um, uh, uh, animated manner they, they really think that it would be an awfully bad thing if we were to defeat aging and so what what do you think people should be concerned about, if anything? I mean, um... I, I can tell you exactly what people should be concerned about. They should be concerned about the fact that these medicines are not being developed at half the rate they could be if funding for that research were appropriate in magnitude. Okay, so, um, and that, that there should be, to within an order of magnitude, you know, or to rounding error, no, um, people should, that, that the reservation should be purely to the, to the fact that this is not being um, pursued more thoroughly uh, currently rather than any reservations about the idea itself. That's absolutely right, yes. I mean, look, it would be pretty... There would be a lot of protest if the funding for research to defeat cancer were cut to the same sort of level as current funding is on research to defeat aging. That, 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 that puts it into perspective. True. That's that's that, that's that's true. Although I suppose I suppose the advantage with anti-aging treatments is that there are treatments in the world where um, people feel that there's disproportionate funding allocated to them because it's you know conditions that affect, which affect people very rarely or are um, socially you know, socially stigmatized. For example, research into mental health, mental health, or in the past um, HIV, for example, were was I, th- I think um, held back by people's attitudes towards it. But I suppose. Um, Aging is something which affects all of us. Yes, exactly. Aging affects all of us. It's the cause of the specific diseases that we are already completely committed to trying to fix. And the problem is that we're going about trying to fix them in a manner that, first of all, is absolutely certain not to work properly because it treats the diseases as if they could be eliminated from the body when, in fact, they are mere side effects of the body's normal operation and therefore in, in, even in principle can't be eliminated. And secondly, um, because they are consequences of aging and therefore age, treatment of aging is simply no, it's synonymous with preventative medicine for those diseases of old age. 
and everyone thinks preventative medicine is a good thing in principle. So it's completely contradictory to be opposed to or even ambivalent about um, the development of medicines that really work against aging.
So that was uh, Pendulum by Ume. Um, so just to kind of wrap up the show, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the um, the state of the art and research uh, into um, into research, uh, reversing and halting aging uh, with medicine. Sure. Let's do that. Um, so I guess, I guess start, maybe we, should, we can start with, with your own research. So what, what kinds of things have you, have you been published and discovered on this topic um, in the course of, of um, your, your research? Well, I basically myself don't really publish uh, uh, academic papers anymore. I, all I really publish is editorials in my journal. But the work that I published in years past, starting in about 1997 through to about 2007, uh, was first of all uh, essentially publishing ideas about what about how aging works, and then starting in about 2002 the essence of this regenerative medicine approach, this preventative maintenance approach. Uh, there were some overview papers of that, that, uh, describing the whole thing and, of course, uh, various papers describing specific components of all of this. Um, however, as things got, have gone on and uh, the Sense Research Foundation has come into existence and we've been able to um, put financial support into certain research, this has allowed us to make some breakthroughs which have led to publications by our researchers, funded by us. Um, one area that we've been particularly successful at in that respect is the development of therapies to eliminate atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, which is, of course, the, um, the number one cause of death in the whole Western world. The way that we're going about this, which is based on an idea I put forward in 1999 originally, is to identify bacteria that can break down the molecules that poison the white blood cells in the major arteries and cause atherosclerosis, um, and to identify the genes and enzymes that those bacteria use in breaking this stuff down, and then incorporate those genes and enzymes into human cells so that, those, so that our cells can break those things down too. And atherosclerosis can not only be prevented, but can also be treated such that atherosclerotic plaques would shrink and eventually disappear. And so this, this, is, this is an idea which, is, which has been found to, I guess, work at least in the lab, or is it still being researched? It's working in, it, working in the lab, that's right. We, we haven't moved to mouse models or animal models yet, but we're probably going to be able to do that within the next year. What we've managed to do so far is to identify specific bacteria that break down the molecule that is really public enemy number one in cardiovascular disease. It's a molecule called 7-ketocholesterol. We've identified the enzymes that these bacteria use to break it down, and we have successfully incorporated the genes encoding that enzyme into human cells in cell culture and shown that those cells are indeed protected very substantially from the toxic effects of this compound. So the Sense Foundation is both um, um, a w working to f fund, uh, fund research directly as, as well as to um, uh, improve public understanding of um, this, these avenues of research. Absolutely right. Most of our money goes to the research itself. Uh, and some of it goes towards outreach. Okay, that, that sounds the reason. And I, I, I guess um, you, 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 have, you I, I imagine you have you have quite quite a long backlog of ideas which which could do with research. Um, and it's it's good to hear that this is coming coming to fruition. We have a very big shopping list for sure. 
Okay, well, um, th thanks very much for joining us. I think that's, that's about all we have time for today. Uh, where should people um, go if they want to learn more about this? They should go to our website, sense.org, S for sugar, E-N-S dot O-R-G, uh, which you will have plenty of information about all of this. Um, there's also a book that I wrote a few years ago, which goes into a great deal of detail. If you're not a biologist, then it's going to be heavy going, but it's readable. It's not something that relies on biological jargon. And if you are a biologist, then I assure you that you will not feel shortchanged in terms of any kind of corners. All the details are there. It's called Ending Aging, and you can get it at Amazon or anywhere like that. Wonderful. I'll, I'll, put, I'll put some links on our, on our website, which you can get, go to to listen to any past episode of the Science of Fiction. It's scienceoffiction.co.uk. You can also subscribe to the podcast to, to, receive, to listen to all the old episodes and listen to new ones as they're released. And we'll be back uh, same time next week on CamFM. Thanks for listening and thank you for joining us, Aubrey. Sounds good. Thank you. 